Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. The conversation that we're having tonight is a critical conversation at a moment of flux and a moment of possibility, but also a moment that is laden um, with a lot of weight in it as well. I'm, I feel really honoured to join this incredible group of people to have this conversation. My name is Jess Scully. I'm an author. Um, I'm a long-time creative industries and, and arts uh, sector advocate, and I'm also the founder of the Civic Imagination Network. Um, I, I feel uh, honoured to have been able to work in the arts and creativity in Australia for you know the last 25 years, um, but. In that entire time, I feel like we've had this, a version of this conversation, you know, several times. You know, what's the future for the arts? What's the vision for the arts? Where to for the arts? And every time it was about art policy. And art policy is really important. It's critical, right? It's the, the enabler. It's the, um, the policy or the institutional funding or the, the support that artists and creative people need in order to tell stories and to, to help feed our national story. But never before this moment have I felt like this conversation is critical for the nation itself. Because we're in this moment uh, that is so uh, charged, so complex, uh, where there is a moment of flux and where we might recognise the idea that, you know, is it possible that progress isn't inevitable? that actually progress requires intention, it requires focus, deliberation, discussion, culture, creativity, and active citizenship, active participation in pushing Australia forward into maturity. And so I think this is a critical moment to have that conversation. And and the question we've been asked today is, what art ought to be? But in a lot of ways, it's a question of what is the story of Australia in 2023 and what role does art and culture play in helping us reckon with these histories that we're not taught and in reckoning with the division that exists and has long existed in this country and that tears through this country in so many different directions. You know, in the context of the moment that we're in, Yes, of course, there is the context of the referendum that we have had and the grief or or the unease that others feel. But there's also the context of a society that's becoming more and more unequal, where people feel alienated from each other, where people feel that they experience that inequality in the housing crisis or the cost of living crisis. Um, we see a, a whole lot of people who've been traumatised through the lockdowns and the um, social inequality that arose from that, uh, that really complex moment in our history as well. And then, of course, there's a moment where we are perhaps also almost about to have uh, both a state and a national arts policy. Maybe this is a great moment for the arts to rise again, to revive, as our national policy, arts policy and cultural policy tells us. But it's time, I think, to have that conversation altogether. And that's why it's wonderful that we have such a brilliant panel joining us tonight. Professor Deborah Cheatham-Frallian is a Yorta Yorta woman, a soprano, a composer and an educator. Uh, She is the inaugural Elizabeth Todd Chair of Vocal Studies at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. 
We also have Michael D'Agostino, who is the Director of Museums and Cultural Engagement at the University of Sydney. Michael has been an influential force in contemporary visual culture, having held leadership roles as inaugural director of the Parramatta Artist Studios and at Campbelltown Arts Centre. And Mindy Mengwang is here, a Chinese-Australian composer and world-leading contemporary Guizhong performing artist. Mindy's a pioneer to bring the Guizhong uh, into many Western genres, such as experimental music, jazz, Western, classical, electronic, pop and improvisation. Mindy, would you like to begin and, and share your reflections on this topic? Uh, first, like, uh, I'd like to just acknowledge the traditional owner of the land, Gaga people, and uh, I pay my respect to the, the elders present and emerging. I want to um, say that, you know, like, uh, I really thanks and appreciate it and that I've been welcomed into this country by a lot. Uh, First Nation people and it, I've been giving love, care and support by them. Um, and that is a reason why I feel like I'm deeply linked with this land, with people um, in the spiritual way. So uh, I think the arts is about, you know, what we talk in the big picture, it's about the future. It's about what kind of future we want. And I often think, you know, come to be an individual artist I think art is the way that I express myself and then my view of the world and what I want to talk it's my voice so um, in different time I, you know it's different when I was young I guess I haven't really found my voice my music is about more about just about music but later on I understood this is not just music is about an idea it's about what you believe in and your inspiration all comes from something you really care about um that's how artists create work you care about something and you feel passionate and you work on that so i think arts is always mostly political because that's the way how artists express themselves about their opinion of what's going on around the world and what they want the world to be in the future. And, um, you know, for example, like um, when uh, I created a work um, just during and after COVID, and that was uh, the, the um, piece called Win, and it's a work that actually uh, used film and music to tell some stories um, individual stories during COVID. And there are a um, couple of stories, you know, what, why I want to do this project is actually linked with my personal experience. There was time, you know, I, I, I live in Melbourne now and in Brunswick. It was meant to be a, a place that it has a lot um, forward thinking in groups, individuals. But um, when I was there, when COVID first started, when lockdown first started, I personally experienced two events of racism towards me, just because I'm a Chinese or Asian looking. 
on the street and in the supermarket. And I was shocked because, you know, I know racism exists and I, I know so many examples of that. But it, when it comes down to me, you know, my, I was shocked. All the, you know, you thought you can say something smart back to those people who will do push you or tell you to go back to where you come from or, uh, you know, shout at you and tell you are like a dirty virus carrier or but at the moment you're just shocked like it's a, it, it, straight into your emotion first and your brain just stops and then later I was thinking I was thinking about okay what do I want to say about this and then how can I change that and then the first thing came to my mind is actually use music and I want make people I've just one thing it was so clear straight away and I I was thinking I was like I just wish they know what's happening with other people who is not uh, you know like Caucasian lives in Brunswick let's say you know a story about people living in Wuhan when COVID first came out everyone was terrified that there was queue outside of a hospital people just you know, people literally dying on the floor, lying in the queue outside a hospital everywhere. And the family, you know, the virus probably was more deadly then and it was no one ever had a vaccine. So there were a huge number of people died. And I think if, of course, the news doesn't help. And if for all those people, you can watch a real story of family torn apart and and by death and you know like everyone's terrified because you don't know like you know i read a story of a a girl her mother first got infected and then her father well they were the early ones so they could still get in the hospital and the the father said okay you stay at home look after cats and your grandma and then we're gonna go i'm gonna go with your mom and then um there was no communication for like half a day. Next thing she knows, mom dead and her father's in a emergency as well. And then, then a few days later, her father's dead. And then, then grandma got it, sick. And she couldn't get a grandma in the hospital. And then so at the very end, she was the only one survived. And then, you know, those kind of, and she was only like a, 18 or something and was happy to going back home for Chinese New Year from university. So, I mean, like, you know, if you really know all those stories and then you wouldn't do what you do as, you know, being racist because they are real human. They're fathers, mother, daughter and sons. And it's the same. So I think, you know, what that's why I want to make a work to wake up the, you know, the empathy and the sympathy in people's heart. And I think that would have, you know, like in, that will make them less racism. So that's like my immediate thoughts after um, encounter with the, the um, sad um, events. Um, so I think, you know, the arts for me is always what I want to, you know, just like what I said, what I want, what, I want to change in this world and what I can do and how to deliver that message. And the music is a way that, it, you know, it's not punched to your face, but it's definitely a very strong statement. Um, 
in any case in the history from the you know thousand years ago to now. So same as the instrument I'm playing, you know, like it's a traditional musical instrument, but uh, my work is about to bring it to the modern context of everything. And I think this is uh, my way of telling the, you know, what I believe in, in a deeper understanding in different cultures, like it would bring a better future and, and that's what I'm doing with my music. I just feel like, you know, people, if they like my music and hear my story, they'll have different kind of a different depths of knowledge of, you know, Chinese culture. And then maybe there'll be less racism like in the world. Like, yeah. So I think that's, that's what I think ours should be, like a, create a better future. Thank you, thank you, Mindy. And so, really, you're, you're talking about the role of stories in creating empathy and building these bridges of connection. Yeah, cultural um, understanding between yeah. cultures. Uh, I, I will come to you next, Michael. Um, tell us about the role of stories. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Gadigal land. Stories are what we need to be telling at this current point in time. So when I first started at Campbelltown Arts Centre a long time ago in 2011, um, Annie Glenda Chalker came up to me and said, what are you going to do about the Appen Massacre? And I was like, what's the Appen Massacre? I grew up in Campbelltown um, and I didn't know anything about it. And I was like, okay, so we sat down and we spoke about this massacre that happened on the 17th of April, 1816, how, her, um, how she was a descendant from that, um, from that group who were effectively killed as a part of an occupation. Um, and then we started talking about this, what we could do. Like, I think art has the power to uh, change people's lives. It has the power to change the way that people think about things. Um, and her response was, I just want people to know about it. Simply, I just want people to know about it. So the 17th of April uh, 2016 commemorated the Appen Massacre. And so we worked together where we established a curatorium of local elders, engaged a curator, Tessa Lass. But then we go, okay, how can we take this local story and place it within an international context? And then we started thinking about parallels between other countries. One of the elders said something that kind of really sticks in my mind. The colonial handbook was replicated across the world. And I went, oh my, you know. And the way that colonies were established and First Nations people were displaced was universal. So we started looking at Canada as a, as a, as a place to talk about this really intense local story, but placing it into an international context. And so when we engaged the curators, um, Tess, Alice and Dave Garneau, they started building the exhibition with the curatorium to tell this story in really deep detail. We had the artists live on site for a period of time and this exhibition took about five years to make. The exhibition came about. We raised this local story that nobody knew about to having an international profile. It was one of the first massacres in Australia that was recorded to take place at that time. Now there's been this whole body of research from the, um, 
the University of Newcastle, which outlines hundreds of massacres. Um, but at the time, that was one of the earliest. And so what we're able to do was take this story and place it within the local schools, have people talk about it. And this idea of truth-telling, this idea of talking about a history that we don't talk about, that is quite unsettling and makes us feel very uncomfortable, putting it into a, a national context. So we're able to do that, and that's something I'm quite proud of. We, you start with a conversation, and then you kind of step outside of that and let the conversation take place. Um, one of the other outcomes which was quite significant that Arnie Glender really wanted was the site to go onto the State Register um, as an important Aboriginal site, um, which happened last year. And so it's a fantastic outcome where we're telling these stories of Australian history that nobody knows about, raising its profile and then giving it significance within these kind of contexts. Um, look, what I thought I'd do is kind of... The, the, if you want to learn more about the exhibition, um, you can go to the Campbelltown Arts Centre website, but there's a great um, documentary which talks about that massacre called The Australian Wars. Um, I urge you to check it out. If you know little about the massacres that took place, that's a great kind of way to start because it tells the stories through the descendants but then also documents the... Um, the stories through personal diaries. Um, and so I'd like to kind of close, I guess, my opening remarks with a, uh, a bit of a, a quote. So on the 10th of April, after many skirmishes between the Darug and the Darawal and the settlers, the governor of New South Wales, Lachlan Macquarie, ordered three battalions to head west and southwest. And now these are his words. Make as many natives as possible to be prisoners with a view of keeping them as hostages until the real guilty ones have surrendered themselves or have been given up by their tribes to summary justice. In the event of the natives making the smaller show of resistance or refusing to surrender when called upon to do so, the officers commanding the military parties have been authorised to fire on them to compel them to surrender. Hanging up on trees the bodies of such natives as may be killed on such occasions in order to strike the greater terror into the survivor. And so that's a history we don't know. And that's Governor Macquarie. Thank you, Michael. Um, you know, we, there are so many critical foundational stories in this country that we don't know. Um, and, you know, you, through this exhibition, raised the profile of this massacre in, 26, in 2016, 100 years after it occurred. But yet, you know, a few years before, there was a statue raised to, to Lachlan Macquarie, you know, at the um, entrance to, to Macquarie Street. You know, we, the, the lack of this truth-telling and this storytelling in our culture sees these these people go uncritiqued by history, uncontextualised by history, um, and these, these stories not being told. Um, Deborah, uh, could I come to you at this point and ask for your perspective on, on this topic? Uh, thank you. Uh, Anne, those words, that story, the truth-telling that began this whole evening, the power 
linked with the humility. Uh, I just want to tell you how grateful I am for that because I want to walk in this country and feel safe again and I don't. I don't. And I can see the sadness and the tired, the weary, uh, the, the weariness that is bearing down on Australians, but particularly First Nations Australians, in these weeks following the crushing result of the referendum. My colleagues here this evening have so elegant, eloquently already expressed that the arts have a power for truth-telling. They have a power beyond any other means. In this country, the neglect of the arts, of arts education for our youngest citizens, our children at school, has rendered us almost powerless as a nation to exercise empathy and critical thought. 35% of people agreed that First Nations people should have a voice and a representation. 35%. I want to feel safe again, and I don't. And so I turn to the arts, but how? Can I give myself permission to have a voice in this country going forward? And yet I must. As Michael said, this is a time for the stories and the truth-telling. If you're hearing that quote from Lachlan Macquarie for the first time, can you raise your hand? Then I am so glad you came here this evening. Truth-telling. Through an exhibition, through a film, through music. A first-hand racism. We all heard the stories at the beginning of the pandemic of the way that our Asian citizens were targeted by those who were themselves afraid but mostly ignorant, who were prepared to classify or to use that most dangerous of mechanisms, the undifferentiated other, and apply that on the otherwise forward-thinking and evolved good citizens of Brunswick. First-hand. And so as artists, Mindy, Michael, myself, and Jess, we turn to the arts and say, how can we make a difference? And we're right to do so. In the longest continuing culture on earth, the arts were the means by which we gave meaning to everything in the world. It's not secondary to anything. It's not merely an entertainment, something of a distraction from the real business of life. It is the business of life. When we talk about the longest continuing culture in the world, 
Well, let me correct myself there. The longest continuing cultures, because we live on a continent. We live on a continent which has always been multicultural. But when I think of what has sustained those cultures over the 2,000 or more generations, it was artistic practice. When knowledge was handed down through song and dance and those symbols that were painted onto the body and the arts were indivisible from one another, the singer was the dancer, the dancer was the painter, the painter was the narrator. Still is to this day. Only one thing I would say, Michael, whilst the majority of the Australian population didn't know about the Appen Massacre, Aboriginal people knew. That story has been handed down just as the elder and the warrior from the great Wiradjuri nation, second only to Yorta Yorta, I'd have to say. <laughs> Connections there definitely aren't. That knowledge has been handed down. A number of years ago, I was entrusted with a story by Gunditjmara elder, Uncle Ken Saunders. He passed away just a month ago. I have permission to use his name in this forum. He entrusted me with a story of one of the longest resistance wars fought in this country that we know of, and that was the Umarala War, which was fought down on the Umarala River in southwestern Victoria. It began in 1840 and lasted until 1863. 23 years of resistance. Uncle asked me would I write a work that would commemorate that war and the warriors. At first he asked me would I write it as an opera. He'd been to see my first opera, Peak and Summer, down on Garna country and he thought what a powerful medium. Deb. Bob, will you write this work as an opera? The story of the Umarella Wars, the story of Gunditjmara resistance. And I thought about it for a moment and said, Uncle, I want to write it as a large-scale orchestral symphonic work. It's going to get so many more performances than an opera would in this country. And that's proven to be true. The last time we performed Umarella, a war requiem for peace, which is sung entirely in Uncle Ken's language, Gunditjmara language, thanks to the leadership of Vicky Cousins, senior language custodian, and Travis Ira, linguist. Last time we performed Umarella, War Requiem for Peace, was on the 14th of October. I went on to stage at 7.30 knowing the result of the referendum. I went on to stage that night knowing that there would be very likely in the audience some people who had voted against and many, many more who were in support. 
And I was charged with the responsibility of not only singing the work that I'd written along with 200 other uh, musicians, singers, soloists, children's choir on stage, but also to introduce the entire evening and dedicate it to the memory of Uncle Ken on that night. On that night gathered in that hall, Hamer Hall on Nam or Melbourne as it's also known, the arts lived out the experience of a nation. We are still fighting that resistance war. You know, I have two children's choirs, one, one based in Shep, sorry, Shepparton in northern Victoria on, on Yorta Yorta country and the other one based down in Geelong on Wadawarang country. And those two children, those two children's choirs, what do I tell them? as they walk on to stage to sing this massive work, what do I tell them? How do I console them? How do I build a future for them where they feel safe, where they feel welcome in their own country? Well, I can't think of another way that is better than giving them voice and reminding them that actually what we were asking for in that referendum was not voice. We have voices. Not even to amplify the voice. What we were really asking for was to be heard from improvement of the hearing of those who are in positions of power and decision-making. It would be reasonable for me, and my wife will attest to this, <laughs> And I have struggled that after 30 years of arts practice, of empowering First Nations musicians and singers to bring their stories to audiences, just like we did on the 14th of October with you, Morella, or War Requiem for Peace, to realise that there's so much more to be done in all the work that I've done in those 30 years, which is standing on the shoulders of some giants, we only got to 35%. There isn't an option. I can only know this world and be in it as an artist. The immediacy of Mindy's story to turn to the arts to combat racism, of Michael's story, to turn to the arts to combat ignorance, and for me to turn to the arts to feel safe again on this land. I'm a little ways off that, but I have to be brave. I have to be brave for the children in my care for the students that I teach at the Sydney Conservatorium. I will turn to the arts because I find healing there. My ancestors knew this world through their song, their dance, the way they painted their stories onto the body. That is where I will feel safe. But it's not just about me. Australia has a wound that it hasn't even identified. I think our attention was focused on that 
But now for many people, as I read a few days ago, it's in the rear view mirror. Not for First Nations people and not for anybody really. It's just we don't want to be the only ones carrying that burden. What will make a difference? The arts. And yes, Jess, arts policy does help. It, it does help. Well, at least it's great to have one, right? <laughs> it had been a while. The First Nations first? What's it going to mean? We have to ask that question. And we have to ensure that if we have any power in this room, and for those watching online, if you have children or grandchildren, nieces, nephews, who go to a school that has no arts program, then you're within your rights and it is your moral duty to go to that school and demand that there be an arts program developed. Because every child deserves to feel as though they are understood through their own personal expression. I don't know what five minutes is, Jess, so I'm going to stop there. I can't stop you. You know I'm I don't. Not going to, you know I'm going to stop you. But, I mean, there's just so many places we need to go, you know, from here in this conversation because you've raised so many important points and all three of you have raised so many important points. But there's a – I want to throw a, a few ideas um, – you know, back to, to you three and then invite um, the audience as well to, to join our conversation. Um, one of the things that, that you said, um, you know, Deborah, was, was that, the, that, the, that there is this healing in storytelling and in, but there is also something kind of urgent and essential in the storytelling uh, that is necessary for us to see ourselves and to understand what maturity is for this country and to move forward. But it is a heavy burden to expect that First Nations people will carry that load and bring that 65%, um, you know, in, in, into this understanding. Uh, we saw a lot of creative people like Yorta Yorta Man, um, you know, Briggs did an incredible amount of work in the referendum lead up. Rachel Perkins, a filmmaker, did an incredible amount of work. A lot of creative people put their heart and soul into that. How can, as creative people and as a creative sector, how can we share the load of truth-telling in a way that is authentic and respectful? You know, I think, for example, in creating the space that you did for, for your, the exhibition, you know, that's a, a great example. But I'd, I'd be interested in, in each of your thoughts, um, and, and particularly yours, Deborah, about how we authentically and respectfully um, putting First Nations first but not expecting First Nations to do all the work. <laughs> yeah, I love that summary. Yeah, not expecting us to do all the work. Um, and also... Uh, you know, your conversation, Michael, began with uh, be, began with consultation. And one of the things I was really interested uh, earlier when we were just chatting before the forum began, uh, that you're in a space where the interaction with community is is constant. Um, do you want to 
just share some of that? Is that okay? Yeah, I'm- for sure. I, I, I think it's kind of interesting when you work in Western Sydney, um, your community is kind of what we like. It, it, it is a part of the art centre. It's a part of what who we engage with, and it's kind of interesting. Like, like because they are the art centre essentially, and you become a part of that community. You can have interesting conversations where there's a strong push and pull. So there are some institutions, you know, you have curators and they kind of dictate what happens and then everything kind of follows from that point of view. But when you're working in Western Sydney and especially with with Secrecy and Dispatch, the exhibition, there was so much push and pull. It wasn't you were the authority. There were other authorities that had to lead that conversation. It wasn't your place to have those conversations. And that's a really interesting kind of position when you're the director of an organisation and you're expected to lead, but you can lead in a way which actually provides space and the opportunity for others to lead. So, for example, at the Chachakwi Museum, which I'm now the director of, we're implementing three pillars, access, equity and authorship. So essentially access is the, you know, it's essentially a door. So how do we open the door? Um, Equity is who comes through that door. And then the idea of authorship is who actually tells that story once they come through. And it's a fascinating thing when you're you're passing that, you know, that kind of, um, it's not an opportunity, you know, you're passing that over to somebody else especially when those objects that we are custodians of are theirs. They're not ours. You know, they've lived in a way that we would never know and we're only holding them um, on behalf of other people. And so when you invite people in to have those conversations, they're actually the authority. Where we understand it through a secondary or a tertiary experience, or we might be reading about those things through um, through text, where communities, that is a part of their heritage, that's a part of their history, that is who they are. And so they're a better place to tell those stories than we are. And so you need to, uns- like we n- need to understand, especially as institutions, how we can just step back and let that conversation happen. Yeah, I- I'd really like... <sighs> I'd love that to be everywhere, Michael, I've got to say. And I'd also like uh, a situation where we say to First Nations people, what would you like to do? What's your agenda? And how long would you like to take to do it? Um, Instead of shoehorning our cultural practice into uh, timeframes that are just unreasonable – or rushing off and getting some funding from somewhere and saying, now how do I find the Aboriginal people to, you know, enact all of this? And that happens all of the time. So, you know, I think that's partly what First Nations First is about. Actually, let's begin, what do you need? What would you like to say? Because whatever benefits First Nations people benefits all of Australia. And unfortunately, that message didn't cut through in the recent campaign and had it, had that been the basis of that campaign, uh, then we may have, I don't know, I think there was about 15% in there whose minds needed to be changed 
I think they're about 40% recalcitrant. I mean, we've seen in, in the last week, uh, you can look at this online, a superimposed map of the no electorates onto a map of Australia that shows the massacre sites that you mentioned earlier, and they correlate. They correlate. So you ask me how far has this country come? Not very far. Uh, I was talking to some Indigenous leadership yesterday uh, and I said, where do you reckon we're up to? And he said, well, it feels like 1967 again, but probably, you know, what would be more accurate is 1966 and we're still waiting for something that was going to make the difference. Uh, yeah, so allowing for the time to create something and being asked what we want to do rather than fitting into somebody else's project. Yeah, I just think, you know, like one thing I want to, I feel like, you know, it's just, it's really strange sometimes people, like they, they put themselves in the group as well, like, like for example, Chinese, and um, they'll just say, ah, oh, the, you know, it's not our problem and you know, actually, I heard lots of you know within our community they they feel sorry, but they don't think it's really related to them. And I find it very strange because I I was just asking them what, what do you think is the difference between like the reasons actually comes in different directions than towards to, but it's the same. The core is the same, you know. And and you know, if you live on in this country, and and your, you know, children are going to be in this country. You wanted this country and the people in this knowing their true identity, which they have to understand the past, the history. And it's just like a human. If you can't make peace with your past, it, you you can never really be yourself and, and have a good future. So I think that's the thing, that 65%, you know, you just think about a, if you... If you actually want to be a complete person that have a complete identity, if you do, and then, then you shouldn't ignore this. You shouldn't let the 35% of people work for what a future that actually should be and a good for everyone. Um, yeah, but, you know, it is difficult. I don't know how we can make this 60 five percent of people understand it but you know earlier we, i was chatting with deborah I, I was just thinking like you know how environment actually is important for people because uh, they you know they get encouraged to think differently and like even like today we put out um some message we tell some stories and there will be a lot of people actually felt something you know they will form their own opinions so i think Maybe the one of the solution is that we just have to do things like this more often. We have to create our, you know, for us as um, artists, you know, we can deliver the message by the work we make. But also we can just talk and create this environment for people, for them to encourage them come closer to us. Yeah, that might be one another way that we can do. I, I think, you know, um, the fact that, you know, both you, Deborah and Mindy, both make work that bring culture 
uh, you know, different fusions or, or combinations and recontextualizations of culture, different cultures and different language together in ways that people experience the emotional content the, the, and the story uh, at this fundamental level, you know, that builds a bridge, an emotional bridge, a human bridge, a story bridge uh, that overcomes some of the obfuscation and the confusion, you know, that we're experiencing in this country and the lack of awareness, the lack of story. Yeah, and you made the point in your introduction, Jess, about um, cost of living, housing crisis and and other things that the citizens of Australia are facing. Indigenous people are facing those things as well as the additional cultural load. And I think um, even in these challenges that we face, there are conversations that we can have about that to share our commonality. Uh, that is very important. Um, and going back to the arts policy, uh, whilst it's great to have one, we need to make sure that those voices that deserve to be heard that perhaps have remained silent or been silenced are supported. We have to look at, well, where is this... Where is this funding going? Uh, is it in the broadest possible sense? Is it is it is it funding commercial uh, uh, pursuits? We need to examine and not be. We actually need to be rigorous. I think there's a lack of rigor in this country at examining what is going on, and we're happy to hand over our power to well not not in this room, but at times happy to hand over our power without actually applying the rigour of examining, well, what, how is that being enacted, this policy? We have a policy now. How is it being enacted? Are we hearing the voices that are informing us of uh, our cultural identity uh, in Australia? And, and to, to hold governments and those who enact policies to their promises. And, and I mean, to your point earlier, and, and one of the things that's extraordinary about the, you know, with Secrecy and Dispatch, the exhibition, is it took five years. I mean, that's how long, at a minimum, it takes to do real work in community and to build consensus and to listen. And, and yet funding cycles and the way that projects are funded, they're, they're disconnected. So how does the policy, if its intention is to get that more in-depth authentic, you know, integrated kind of approach from community, how does the policy and its enactment actually uh, create the conditions for that to be possible? I think that's, you know, one, one way that we can, uh, you know, no pressure because no, I know no, that no, you're no. on the, on the um, steering committee for the New South Wales policy, so you could pop that one in there. Uh, but, but I think, you know, the, the formal structures have to match the stated intention or else we just get more of the same, right? Yeah. Look, I, I know the Minister's come out publicly to talk about grassroots participation and the lack of participation in the arts at this current point in time. And I, you know, and I have a feeling that this will become one of those points that will underpin the policy, that everybody should be able to participate in the arts in the way that they want to participate and on their own terms. And that's a really fundamental change to the way it's happened previously, especially around access. And I can talk in particular about Western Sydney and public schools. There's been an erosion of arts education over the last decade. It's horrific. Um, and so if you want to have an arts education or want to participate in the arts, you have one choice and that you have to participate after school 
and it's usually a paid activity. So that excludes quite a number of different communities that can't fund that. And so I'm hoping that there will be a change, not just to the way that we participated in the arts, but from when you start school, having that experience where you do have that, like we all have had those arts experiences, right? We know them and they've changed our lives. And that's the, why, the, why, the reason why we, we participate in this, in this amazing thing. But if kids don't have that experience, then they grow up not knowing what the arts can be. And so I'm hoping with this new policy that there will be a focus on arts education. There will be an opportunity where everybody will be able to participate in the arts in the way that they haven't previously. That's an aspiration. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I owe my entire path really to my high school music teacher um, her son is here tonight, my godson James, and uh, were it not for Jennifer King, her husband Lionel, two amazing teachers who showed me what the possibilities were through the arts, through every, every possible art form. Uh, it began with opera but it extended through every single art form and there was access, access. It was affordable. You know, I could go to the opera three times a week and have change from $15. It was incredible. Uh, we need to make the arts accessible, all the arts accessible, but also make it possible for children to participate in creating their own art so that they can fully form. There are just parts of the brain that don't function properly unless you've had some arts education, particularly music. There are pathways in the brain that only open up through the study of music. And that doesn't mean that you need to take it to a professional level. Some will, most won't. But it opens up pathways in the brain that otherwise wouldn't be there. It makes sense. But we need governments with a will to allow themselves to have an informed electorate. Do they have the will to allow that to happen? And, and we do that for sports. So we encourage our kids, whether they turn into professional sports people or not, we encourage them to participate in sports. But, you know, the arts is about thinking and about kind of all these amazing things. And some people do and some people don't. And then some people just don't have the access. And, and maybe don't see themselves, haven't been, been, you know, enabled to see themselves, you know, as, as having that voice or, or having that access or um, having something to say. You know, it's it's both enabling and empowering, you know, people. Yeah, to... it's not just content. It's the, it's, it's the meaning of our existence, artistic expression. I'd love to go to an audience question. If you can raise your hand if you have one. Um, while you're doing that, if you have any uh, – and we've got um, some roving microphones in the room and the, uh, the ushers will come to you with uh, the microphone if you have a question. We've also received a whole range of questions. Some of the questions are uh, – what kind of – I'm going to read a few of them and then perhaps we might uh, – I might ask each of you to, to pick a, a question and answer it um, if we don't have any questions in the room. Oh, we've got one over there. Okay. Um, uh, 
So what kind of collaborations with non-Indigenous musicians and artists do you feel would be most productive for healing and truth-telling is the first question that we have there. And then we've had we've got a couple of uh, related questions, like how do non-Indigenous artists champion Indigenous languages and stories? So, you know, again, how, how do other... Uh, how do... Uh, the you know ninety seven percent, the six you know help the the three percent help the artists to to do you know get involved in the truth telling and, and to share the load there, uh, and then we have some questions as well uh, about arts education, um, which speaks very much to the point you've both just made. Good arts education happens by chance, not by default in Australia, and how do we fix this? So um, those are, are two really great uh, Slido questions, and then we also have a question in the room. Uh, could, could I ask you to, to reflect on some of those questions and then we'll come to you? I want to jump in on the language one. So uh, context is really important, so I'll give some context. Uh, Indigenous languages, First Nations languages across the continent was suppressed in the most brutal fashion. Uh, so what's really important to First Nations people now is that, first of all, their children learn their languages. So languages are in revival in many places and the priority in most places that I've uh, engaged with is that the children learn language. So uh, I say that because while there's a, a great deal of interest in uh, having First Nations language and setting that language uh, those texts to music and and what have you, uh, you just need to curb your enthusiasm a little bit for your own participation in that. What you can do is support performances that are taking place that are Indigenous-led and projects that are Indigenous-driven. Uh, you know, uh, for instance, and, and, and get on board with performances. Uh, there's a chorister from Sydney Philharmonia this evening who said hello to me as she arrived and she said, look, I'm loving singing your work, Tanami Lule. Sydney Phil sing that before every performance they give. So that's a way being in that choir you can participate in, in singing language. But, you know, going to a website and ripping some language off there and setting it to music and celebrating that all on your own, that that's running in the opposite direction to the desires of First Nations people. Collaboration is really important. Uh, you know, I, I really think... Look, next year, I mentioned Yura Morella, A War Requiem for Peace, and the Sydney Symphony Orchestra have put that into their subscription series this year, uh, and it'll go on sale shortly. For those members of the Sydney Phil who are in that choir, they will sing 85 minutes of Gundichamara language. And that has come about from that request that I mentioned before from Uncle Ken Saunders, the permission that I gained as a Yorta Yorta woman to write something in Gundichamara. It would have been completely wrong for me to just write something in Gundichamara without that invitation. Uh, in a little while, Mindy and I are going to perform uh, an excerpt from a work and there's an explanation about it that I'll play on video in a little bit. That is a borrowed language as well. It's not my language. It's language from Melville Island in the Tiwi Islands. That is given by permission. So it's really important to get alongside Indigenous artists who are reviving their language and support them to do what they want to do. Thank you. I'd like to take the audience question and maybe we can uh, 
close on the question about the arts education before we move to the performance. So if we could take this audience question, please. My question uh, relates to kind of my life. So I was born to parents who themselves had parents in the arts. So throughout my entire lifetime, um, I've always had access to the arts and tools to make art too. And throughout my education, I always had the chance and opportunity to you know, create art too. So really, I just want to clarify, what you're saying is that classes are not being delivered for art making, or perhaps teachers are not being given the resources to uh, give their students the tools to make art? Is, is, is that what we're discussing when you're saying we don't have access to art it's, making? It's a combination of both. So it's not, so art education still does happen in the schools, but it's quite restricted to I remember when I went to, when I was in year 11 and 12, I had a fantastic art teacher, visual arts, who introduced me to Marina Abramovich, Mike Parr, Stellark, these amazing artists. Um, and I could just hang out there the whole time. Um, now, it's just, it's, it's much more restricted um, if they've got good relationships with the art centres, so especially when I was working at Campbelltown, we used to do a lot of the arts education on behalf of the schools. We used to do a lot of incursions um, going into schools. But if the, the principal didn't see it as a priority, then it kind of dropped down the list. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all of that. Arts education policy changed um, a little while ago. And uh, the most alarming statistic... Uh, that I, I ever came across was this. When it's amateurised out over, uh, you know, the period of the week, arts education has 15 minutes a week in the life of an Australian student. 15 minutes. That's not just for music. That's 15 minutes for all the arts. So when it's amateurised out over the life of a... a, a, um, a student going through public education in Australia... It's 15 minutes a week. It's just not enough. <laughs> I mean, it really speaks to this question that it, it happens by chance, by kind of privilege or, you know, having a, the privilege of having a fantastic teacher, the luck of having a motivated teacher, you know, uh, or, 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 you know, being in a school that has the resources to, to do arts education. It's not something that's consistent, that's fair, that's accessible. And that seems to, there's, there's quite a thread of questions on this as well online. That seems to be a common theme uh, coming through from the audience that one of the ways we can start to fix this problem in this situation is to begin with education, to begin in even in daycare, uh, you know, in primary schools, in childcare, you know, from the very foundations of how people, young people see themselves and learn to express themselves. It's the foundations of society. How can we be separating it out from everything else? <laughs> There, there's something that um, Alison Page says uh, often, a, um, a, a fantastic um, First Nations uh, designer and architect um, and author, um, and she says that uh, for First Nations people, you know, work was the, she says, boating, camping, fishing, and it was a few hours a week, and the real work was culture and storytelling and, and art making and sense making. Um, and there is a need for Australia perhaps to get 
to that kind of mindset where we understand the real work of the hum- of humanity is making sense of the world we're in and making connections with each other. Um, and we're a long way from there right now. Uh, but beginning with childhood and with education and the arts does seem to be a really core cool part of that. Well, we've got an infinite amount of questions there. I know we have more questions in the room, but we have run over time. And, and what I'd like to do now is um, invite Deborah to introduce the work that we're about to experience and ask, uh, invite Mindy to, to go set up for the work as well. The Woven Song uh, Chamber Music Series uh, is a series of pieces that I've written that responds to tapestries that hang in Australian embassies around the world. And those tapestries were made in the Australian Tapestry Workshop in Victoria. Each of those tapestries responds to the work of a prominent First Nations visual artist. And um, if we can... Uh, if we can roll the video, please, that introduces uh, this particular work. Pukamani is the ceremony of loss and remembrance. The designs, which are powerfully represented on the Pukamani poles, are derived from the body paint that is worn for each ceremony. The use of flute, oboe and clarinet combined with the traditional gujen recreates a moment of personal ceremony and reflection. Pedro Wanyamiri is a senior Tiwi artist. It is my response to the magnificent Wanyamiri tapestry. It is also dedicated to the memory of a young man who was much loved in this life and who left us all too soon. The morning star shone on the earth. I looked into the distance and saw you leave this place. Fly on, Wedgetail Eagle. Fly on, our bundle. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.